I'm Nick Hanauer. As someone who's been in and around corporate boardrooms my entire career, there's nothing I know better than the extent to which many of my business colleagues will go to lie to protect their power and profits. And in my new book, Corporate Bullshit, co-authored with Joan Walsh and Don Cohen, we make this manipulative duplicity plain as day by placing egregious past quotes from corporate executives next to the equally outrageous contemporary quotes, all of which justify outcomes that lie in pockets while harming society. Again, the book is called Corporate Bullshit, and you can pre-order the book now wherever books are sold. If you're a longtime listener of Pitchfork Economics, you've probably heard us tell you that the golden rule of middle-out economics is that the more people you include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows for everybody. And so to drive that point home yet once again, we thought we'd re-air our conversation with John A. Powell, the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute, about why belonging is so important for a healthy community and why inclusion is the key to a thriving economy. Enjoy. Legislatures around the country and the Supreme Court are making participation harder, not easier. Participation in not just in the economy, but in, but the, in democracy. the democracy. Right. You're saying a process of othering, devaluing human beings, and the solution to it is belonging. Inclusion is, is kind of something that happens to you, like, okay, gonna, you can be included. Yeah. Whereas belonging is something that we do together. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. Contrary to what you may have learned in your Econ 101 textbook, we believe that Diversity and inclusion are actually primary drivers of economic growth and prosperity. But unfortunately, while this is a pretty diverse country, Nick, uh, we're not really all that inclusive. No, we are not uh, at all. And it's in many ways getting worse, not better. Concentrations of power at the top are increasing, not decreasing. Both uh, legislatures around the country and the Supreme Court in particular are making participation harder, not easier. Participation in not just in the economy, but in, but the, in democracy the democracy, right? And in civil society. That's right. And, um, you know, obviously this is in many ways going in the wrong direction, but is the consequence of decades of momentum created by neoliberal economic policy and the increasing radicalization of an increasingly racist and existentially threatened right wing. But today we get to talk to a really super interesting person who's on the other side of that argument on our side. John A. Powell is the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's a internationally recognized expert in the area of civil rights, civil liberties, structural racism, housing, poverty, and democracy. And 
I think this is going to be a really interesting podcast that will delve deeply into the philosophical underpinnings of the wrong way of thinking about it and the right way of thinking about how to build a high-functioning society and democracy. My name is John Powell. I'm a professor at University of California, Berkeley, and the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. And I teach in the law school, African-American studies and ethnic studies. And we promote the idea of belonging through the lens of target universalism and bridging. So John, start off by telling us what the Othering and Belonging Institute is and what you guys do. Uh, we do a lot of things. We're fairly, si fairly good size. We have about 120 professors and uh, depending on how you count it, about 70 staff. We have about 10 staff in Europe. We do research from top to bottom. I think we have at least one, maybe two Nobel laureates affiliated with the Institute. We work with grassroots organizers. We work with churches. We work with some of the largest companies in the, in the world. Uh, we work with hundreds of governments. Um, and we do everything from original research to implementation to evaluation to helping people frame things. We work in the mind science area. So as you might imagine, the framework of othering and belonging uh, initially was the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. And I should add that one of the clusters, we have seven clusters, where the professors cluster around certain themes, and one of them is economics. Um, and also around populations. So we really cover the waterfront, which makes it hard, you know, when you do everything, it's hard to give a particular example, but- But there must be a through line. Yeah, the through line is belonging. So we feel that the world is organized largely around uh, some groups being considered not full people, not full citizens, not full members, to be exploited, to be used. And that takes on different forms. It takes on the form of race sometimes. It takes on the form of disability sometimes. It can take on a combination of that. It takes on, we're looking at it right now with the Supreme Court in terms of gender, who gets the right to vote, whose vote count. So we think about that. If you think about that in terms of this country, you'd come to the history of enslavement, the taking of Native American land, immigration. All of those things are expressions of saying certain groups of people don't belong. Yeah. That expression also constitute some sense of the group that suppose apparently does belong. So we can talk about each one of those separately, and we have, but we also think the through line is that you're seeing a process of othering, devaluing human beings, and the solution to it is belonging. Yeah. Belonging in terms of economy, in terms of health, in terms of schools, in terms of uh, civic participation, in terms of money. What would a really society that's thriving and people's worth as peoples and participants look like. One of my favorite examples of that by you, makers and takers. Yes, I think uh, <laughs> other people, Romney talked about yeah. that. Well, and uh, Paul Ryan, right? right it's the right. sort of canonical expression of neoliberalism or trickle-down economics, right? There's a few people at the top that are worthy, right? and everybody else is a, you know, or, yes. or Reagan's thing of the truly deserving poor. Yes. Some, like some people are deserving and some not. And we, yeah, get to, yeah, we, yeah. we get to decide who they are. Right. Right. And, you know, we're excited to talk to you because we believe that 
you know, to, you know, orthodox economic theory and it's sort of weaponized ideological expression, neoliberalism or market fundamentalism or whatever you call it is largely a protection racket for the rich. It's a narrative designed by and for people at the top to exclude, you know, the participation of most people. I think that's right. I would maybe even broaden it a little bit because in some fashion, one could argue that the, the current version of neoeconomic uh, neoliberalism and uh, coming out of um, really the 70s and 80s. Yeah. But before that, even then, the economy was not really structured for people to fully participate and to have what they need to thrive. And some could argue now, partially through the work of Trump and others, we're experiencing kind of ethnic nationalism, but also economic nationalism. So I just want to make clear to your listeners that there are many different ways of arranging the economy so it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Neoliberalism is just one expression. And yeah. Racism and, and sexism are other expressions. Yeah. Or, or, you know, sort of rank nationalism, right? It's like where you had protectionism and just trying to protect your part of the world. Uh, uh, colonialism. I mean, one thing that's interesting is that after World War II, the English were mad at the United States because the United States wouldn't help England hold on to its colonies. Uh, and the United States notion was, no, you're going to open up markets so we can take them. <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was a colonial market before World War II, not neoliberal, but uh, it still was not serving people. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, diversity and inclusion from a kind of abstract uh, economic perspective, how it's in, in how, how they drive growth. And of course, America is very diverse. It's not nearly as inclusive as it is diverse. Are things things getting worse? I mean, <laughs> what is the state of affairs in terms of belonging and othering in, in the U.S. today? Well, I think we're moving in multiple directions at the same time. We're in a lot of turmoil. Some people talk about inflection point, uh, certainly since the pandemic. Uh, obviously, the Supreme Court threatening to overturn Roe v. Wade. They've already overturned voting. They overturn money in, in terms of the political discourse with uh, Citizens United. The governor of Texas just announced that maybe all children shouldn't be have a right to public education. So the right wing, uh, they're not conservatives. We call them, they're, they're not conservative. They're not, they're, they, have, they have a radical right wing agenda mm -hmm. that's uh, rooted on uh, racial and ethnic nationalism. And they're gaining some steam. They're not a majority. Uh, and majorities should count in a democracy. If we had a democracy, we don't really have a democracy. But at the same time, you have a large number of people really for the first time thinking about what does equality and equity and even belonging really means. You know, we have the largest set of demonstrations in support of some concept of equality, racial equality and beyond after George Floyd's death uh, that was unprecedented. So I think it's too easy to sort of look at one part of that and say, you know, we lost, or the other part of that and say, we won. We're in the middle of a pitch fight. And the important thing is to be in that fight and understand what we're fighting for and what we're fighting against. You know, we'll 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 get to it a little further when we talk about your notion of targeted universalism. But uh, in terms of outcomes, 
what would you say, what would belonging and inclusion look like from an economic perspective in particular, but, but broadly as well? Well, a few things. I wrote a piece several years ago looking at poverty, uh, and I basically said poverty is not simply lack of stuff, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's lack of belonging. It's lack of belonging. It's saying society doesn't regard you as a full member. And that shows up in economic terms, in working terms, in working condition terms. It also shows up in terms of voice. Uh, Joseph Spicklet, in one of his recent books, argued that our economic crisis is really a political crisis. You know, we have to think about who is structuring uh, our tax codes, who's structuring property. These are political questions that some, in some sense precede economic questions. And we used to talk about political economy uh, and uh, partially as a result of neoliberalism, we think of the economy as a freestanding thing or as this, as this sort of market, uh, market fundamentalism, which is not. And uh, the country has grown. The, the promise with neoliberalism and globalization, uh, the way it took shape, uh, was that we grow the economy and everybody would be better off. Half of that was apparently true. That is, the size of the economy since the 1970s, depending on how you count it, is three or four times larger. But people are not three or four times better off unless you're Elon Musk or unless you're uh, head of uh, Amazon, unless you're head of you know, so one of these large companies. So we've seen more wealth come into society and even the world, but it being concentrated in fewer and fewer people. And what they're doing with that wealth is actually using it in large part to structure systems, to perpetuate it and continue to protect themselves. The, the point is, is that the idea of a democracy and the idea of belonging go, go hand in hand. Yeah, Belonging is more than inclusion. Inclusion is you're joining something this part that belongs to someone else. You're a guest. You get to join a company, you get to join a, join a school, uh, but the rules, the norms, the structure has been set by someone else. Uh, that's inclusion. I give an example. It's like if I give a party, all of you are invited, but it's my music, my friends, my food. Don't come in messing with the furniture. That's not your job. Just come in and have a good time and then leave. Uh, that's inclusion. Belonging is that it's not my party. It's not your party. It's our party. And so this fight, even like, who does the country belong to? Who does the planet belong to? It doesn't belong to, it shouldn't belong to the billionaires and multi-billionaires. It shouldn't belong to one racial or ethnic group. It belongs to all of us. And we get to co-create it. So the watchword is co-create. Co-create is another word for a strong democracy that we get to actually, and it's not formalized in the sense of every four years we have a ritual of voting for uh, two candidates off the time, neither which do we like. The whole structure of our democracy is actually structured not to be a democracy, it's structured at best be a republic and even worse than that. So belonging would actually say, hmm, I mean, think about this. We say you could change the constitution, uh, but we make it virtually impossible. So you can change it. It's like if you can get 100% of the votes, you can do whatever you want to. But you're never going to get 100% of the votes. So we created these mechanisms so that in theory, we can make some changes in the country. But it's virtually, it's extremely difficult. It's a way of protecting the elites. And then the last example I'll give is Citizens United. 
Citizens United is an interesting case, and it goes back to really the 1900s because corporations were part of government when the country first started. They were not independent. And, and it was a famous case, I think the Charles River case, uh, where companies basically said they should not longer be under the heel of government, they should be independent. And it was very controversial because even then corporations had a lot of power. And the court agreed with corporations, but the Faustian deal was they can amass independence and wealth, but they can't use their independence and wealth to infect politics. There's a wall between corporations and politics. And that wall crumbled starting late in the 19th century, but then uh, with Citizens United, we devastated the wall. So now you take all of that wealth, power, and money, and you allow it to really distort our economy. In an article I wrote, I basically say, when corporations are in the same sphere as citizens, then citizens don't belong. They push citizens out of the sphere. Uh, people are beholden to the organizations of corporations in power. Right. A great example from the news is Boeing, I think, just announced yesterday that it was moving its headquarters, formerly from Seattle to Chicago and now to the Washington, D.C. area, because that's really what it's in the business of, is influencing Congress. Exactly. So it moved from a place where it was centered on engineering right to here. a place where here in Seattle, to a place where it was centered on uh, accounting and finance. Chicago, to a place where it's going to be centered on lobbying and manipulating the political process. Right, right. And <laughs> that's its core it's just, business. Yeah. It, right. Management <laughs> perceives that as its core <laughs> business. Not making super high quality products. Well, think about <laughs> Elon Musk, right? California said, you know, they're regulating the Tesla factories under COVID. And among other things, has him to pay some taxes. He's the richest man in the world. He has a tent potential. So I'm taking my company to Texas. Yeah. You know, and where they're giving me money, they said they won't regulate me. When when Amazon tried to build a, a place in New York, actually it had a, a beauty contest. It said, cities, governments all over the country, tell me what you will give me if I move my business to your place. Tell me what you will give me. One of the things he asked for was a heliport where he, so he could fly his helicopter in and out. Here again, one of the richest people in the world, you know, to go back and forth between he and Elon. Uh, and what he's asking, what are you going to give me? You know, not what I'm going to, am I going to contribute to society? And at the end of the day, he decided not to move to New York because uh, they wouldn't give him enough. And people are desperate. They need jobs, uh, they need health care. And that becomes the promise. So, our society is so distorted, uh, so misaligned. And that alignment, the glue to that alignment is largely racial anxiety. So why are all these people who need jobs following Trump and following you know, the right wing when um, from an economic perspective, it's very clear, they don't reflect the economic interests. So you know the, the thing that we're really focused on in this podcast and in our work, John, is the way in which, in particular, neoclassical economics has both passed itself off as this set of immutable 
scientific ideas that are essentially, you know, essentially expressions of laws of nature, but that if you take them seriously, the only thing that can happen is that the rich will get richer and everyone else will get poorer, that the powerful will become ever more powerful and everyone else will become weaker. Down to things as simple as conceiving of the economy as a Pareto optimal equilibrium, right? Like mm -hmm. if there was ever an idea that was better suited to protect the interests of the status quo, I don't know what it is, right? Because yeah. if it's a Pareto optimal equilibrium where any exogenous shock decreases welfare for everyone, well, then we should pretty much leave everything else alone, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? By definition. And, you know, I'm just so fascinated by the way in which that framework of thought intersects with your institute's thinking. You know, I oftentimes look at things as like when something is obvious and we're not doing it or, or we're ignoring it, we have to look, look, look more deeply. It's like I stick my hand in fire, it burns. I stick it back in, then it burns again. I stick it back and say, wait a minute, John, what are you doing? Don't you know it burns? Obviously, I know it burns. I'm getting burned. Why are you doing it then? And I think that since our founding, and, you know, frankly, W.B. Du Bois talked about it. He said, we traded in our democracy for basically white supremacy. And he said, what many people got, many whites got, was psychological wage. Um, David Rodeker wrote a book called The Wages of Whiteness. And we see time and time again, at different critical times, during the progressive movement, during, you know, there were efforts to actually break this down many times. And what the elites were always able to do was to turn it back in part based on racial resentment and, and hostility. When Truman was in the White House, he proposed a universal health care plan. And the whole country was suffering from lack of health care. We had just come out of World War II. He had the votes to get it passed. And then someone asked him at the last moment, if we have universal health care, will the hospitals be integrated? Truman said, yes. They turned it down. And when I say they turned it down, it was obviously Congress, but the American, white Americans by and large, especially in the South, supported it. Is that we'd rather go without health care than to share a hospital with the racial other. And so if you look, think about all the demonstrations, if you know, if we hold Occupy in a baseball moment, the, you know, we have demonstrations about wearing face masks. We've had demonstrations about police killings. We've had demonstrations about integrating neighborhoods, trying to, try to build low-income housing in a neighborhood. We had demonstrations about immigrants. Five immigrants want to come to the country. We've had on and on. Almost no demonstrations about the economy. Um, yeah. Certainly not at a national level. We have a, 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 a factory goes on strike. That's it. But it, uh, and then we have laws, right? Saying if there's a strike, there can't be a secondary strike. There can't be, you can't really join in. I mean, so people feel the economy on one hand, but the kind of sustained movement that, I mean, we just had an interruption on January 6th. People storming the Capitol. What are they asking for? Asking that Trump stay in as president. They're asking that our democracy, we get rid of our democracy, send the way, you know? So, Part of the thing that's happening, and we this is what I mean, the glue that holds this country together, that holds this rotten deal together, is racial resentment. And the racial resentment, Republican Party is basically 
almost a 50-50 party with the Democrat party. If you look at their agenda, so what's their platform for the midterms? They said they don't have one. They don't need one. What they're going to ride is fear about critical race theory, fear about pedophiles, fear about uh, immigrants coming to the country. The thing is fear, and fear is not rational. Yeah, but it is the defining psychological determinant of whether you're uh, liberal or conservative. That's threat, right. Is That's threat right. sensitivity. It's, and it's not, it's not just, I said it's not rational, it's certainly strategic. Fear has been weaponized. And so as the country sort of goes through, I mean, when you think about it, it's amazing. We just finished a presidency a few years ago with the first African-American president. You know, you can think he was not, you know, he you may say he's not the best president, not the worst president, but the kind of anxiety Trump and the Republican parties was able to build around it, not just his presidency, his candidacy. He's not a real American. He wasn't born here. Really what they're saying is you, by, by the fact that you're black, don't belong. When Trump says the election was stolen, there's a subtext to it. He doesn't mean necessarily that people went to the ballot and stole the thing. He meant that Black people turned out in record numbers, certainly in Georgia, is in of itself illegitimate. And so we have over 30 states now running around the country after the attorney general that, point, that, that Trump appointed said there's no evidence of substantial voter fraud. So what do we do? We have to pass laws to end the voter fraud that we didn't find. What are they really saying? I mean, it's just, it's just maddening, right? So I think that sort of putting these two things together, we need a different approach. And the approach we have, I think, keeps taking us back to the same place where we're stuck. So what is the different approach? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> uh, part of the response to the question is that, yes, we have to build a framework and a story and an analysis that actually is more complicated more complicated in terms of what it takes into account of, not more complicated in terms of how we actually convince people of it. The, the message has to be simple. What it's pointing to has to be more complicated, not be more specific. So yesterday I was on a panel about closing the racial wealth gap. Uh, and I'm saying that's important, but it's the wrong target by itself. Because what it does, it just says whites are doing okay in terms of wealth, and people of color, particularly African-Americans, are doing very bad. And implicit in that, if not explicit, is that whites are the perpetrators. They're benefiting from a system in which Blacks are being subjugated. But when we, when we frame the issue in terms of the racial wealth gap, and you know, I, I gave the example. I said, you know, if Jeff Bezos walks in here, he's white, then and the other white person in the room is unemployed, the gap between whites and blacks will be huge. But not because the white guy standing next to me is doing so well, it's because Jeff Bezos is in the room. Yeah. So, so there's one story where we don't want to look at race at all, right? And that's, you know, the other story is that we look at it in categorical terms. And, and the population that's white is distributed and very heterogeneous. Uh, and the same is true of the population that's Black. And so instead of just white and Black, we have to look at 
the complexity, the people's lives. And in that complexity, be willing to say, we are concerned about all those people's suffering. And no, we're not equating the suffering. We're not saying that every group suffers the same as the other group, but every group does suffer. Wherever there's suffering, we will actually deal with. And which means we do care about the, the white single mom in the suburbs. I mean, I had this conversation with, with some of the leadership at SEIU saying, you gotta, she has to show up in the story. She's a large part of your base, but you're not really talking to her. And 30 plus percent of SEIU's base supported Trump. And most of them are white. And it's like, why? Because Trump's talking to him. Yeah. He's lying to him, but you're not really talking to him. You're lumping them with Elon Musk. You're lumping them with Trump. So that's the more complicated story. We have to, we have to be willing to say, you know, okay, I can't pay my rent. You say, yeah, but I'm homeless. Okay, we're both, we're both screwed. It's not that my not being paying my rent is of no consequence because you're homeless. Uh, and that's what we do a lot of times. It's like, you know, we tell my story, Bob Marley talks about every man thinks his burden is the heaviest. We don't want to hear about other people's burden. Uh, and I think that's the complicated story we have to tell. So to be clear, when you're suppressing wages, as we have in this country for the last 40 years, you're advantaged by the fact that the people whose wages you are suppressing are people of color who have the least economic power in the society, which makes it easier and easier to suppress their wages. Right. I agree. And the thing is, some of it's intentional, some of it's not. Some of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, for example, if you say, and I teach at Berkeley, I have most of my students, have very few black students, you know, uh, and Berkeley is constantly saying we want more diverse student population and particularly blacks. Why don't we get them? Well, we, we get students when they're 18 or 22 years old. They've been through a whole system. When the, when the COVID hit, we did a lot of research on COVID. We were, we pushed Michigan to be the first state to disaggregate the data. And everyone was saying COVID is equal opportunity disease. I said, that's, that would be unique in the history of this country. Not because someone was saying, let's make COVID really attack Native Americans and Blacks, but because people are situated differently, when you push things through the system, it would distribute it in different ways. So Michigan disaggregated the data and almost was shocked that the incidence of getting COVID and the incidence of getting treatment and the incident of dying, at every stage, there was a huge racial gap. And from my perspective, it wasn't an intentional response, it was basically the structures in place and the structure does most of the work now. Yeah, it was the it was the inevitable outcome of the structure of the right, society. Right. So 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 let's talk about one of your your approaches to um, uh, realities like this, which is uh, targeted universalism, which is a, a, a different way of thinking about policy. If you could explain in general, uh, what targeted universalism is, and and use that example with COVID and the disparate um, health outcomes, how how one might apply it towards addressing that. So the idea of targeted universalism is that you have a universal goal that's not pegged to any particular population. You say, we need a healthy society, people need certain things. Everybody needs to have good health care. Everybody needs to have good schools. We want people to thrive. We want people to have, in terms of the conversation I had yesterday, how much wealth does a family need to have economic security? Just, you know, have the economists cut up that number. 
And they'll say, they'll say you know, I mean, you certainly need three or four months to be able to be unemployed uh, and to be able to survive. You certainly need to be able to, you know, uh, with the cost of school and, and health to get sick and pay for education. So come up with a number, whatever it is, we can come up with that number. So that's, that can be, in this case, be the universal. Every family should have this amount of wealth, this amount of cushion. And then you say, that's the universal. How do we get families there? Which group is already there? It's likely that for the most part, no group is there. Whites are not going to be there. Blacks are not going to be there. Native Americans are not going to be there. Asians. The point is, is that then you say, what would it take for group A to get there? That's the targeted part. This targeted is based on how people are actually situated. You're saying people are situated in different structures and are situated in different places in relation to that universal. How do we get them there? So then the strategies become targeted based on people's situatedness. And the goal is to get every group, not just the most marginal group and not the most favorite group. The goal is to get everybody to that universal, but recognizing that you're going to use different strategies to get them there. I mean, th think about something like ESL in school. We, we have ESL in school now, English as a second language. So students can start learning instructions in their own language and eventually switch over to English. When that case first came to the to the court, it literally went to the Supreme Court because the idea was, no, we're going to treat everybody the same. Or think about something like the American Disability Act. Uh, the idea that someone comes to an escalator trying to get from the second floor to the third floor, and they're in a wheelchair. One response is, don't treat, treat everybody the same. And that was our concept of equality until really the 1970s. Uh, to the extent that we had a concept of equality. It's, it's like, I don't see race. I don't see ethnicity. I don't see, I just see a human being. I don't see any, I don't see the person's condition. And so target universalism says, we actually want to address that. Equity sort of saw the difference, but then it used the favorite group as the target. And oftentimes, as you suggested, the favorite group or what's called the favorite group is actually not doing very well. You know, so white men, which was, the default favorite group, uh, their, their income has been relatively static for 40 mm -hmm. years. So is that what I want? Do they have what they need? No. Uh, they may still have more than what their woman counterpart have or more than their Black counterpart if they're white men, but they don't have enough. So targeting universalism takes the sort of competition over scarce resources between groups and say, we all deserve X. That's the universal. And we're in different relationship to that X, so we'll have different strategies. But not because you're white, not because you're a man, not because you're, it's because of how you're situated in relationship to these universals. It's it's interesting because kind of implicit in, in the conversation about targeted universalism is the acknowledgement that many of our existing policies aren't really outcome oriented. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. It's very outcome oriented. It's like, you know, because we'll say, well, we gave the school an extra 5%. And what happened? You know, the, an educator will tell you that probably the most single most important thing in terms of schools is the teacher. And for high poverty schools, 5% is not going to hire you uh, qualified teachers. And so even teachers, that's an input in and of itself. 
we ought to look at the outcome. The goal is to give people that outcome. And we're agnostic about the best way to do that. I, I, I know we've gone over time, um, but we, we have a couple final questions for you, um, which we, we pose to a lot of our guests. The first is the benevolent dictator question. No economic or political constraints. What would you do? What would you prioritize? Uh, what would you do to prioritize building a you know, more belonging and inclusion in our economy? So it's a great question. Uh, and of course, I start off with, there's no such thing as a benevolent dictator. It's a contradiction. Right. <laughs> right. right. <Yeah>. And so <laughs> We know. Yeah. We know. <laughs> so the thing is, you know, in America Sin, the economist from India, he talks about this. Mm -hmm. right? He said, what do people need? He doesn't use the word belonging. It's the same concept. He said, what right. do people need to effectively participate in their society? And uh, I wrote a piece which I said, the first good in a society, the primary good in society it's not money, it's not free speech, uh, it's not health. The first good is membership because members then decide what all the other goods are. Members set the terms of how the society will operate. So having a real democracy, having this, not just in the, again, where you perform something every two or four years, but where you can actually structure society and to your point that you made earlier, it's outcome oriented. We wanna make sure mm -hmm. that everyone can participate, everyone. And that no participation is so extreme. I mean, if you go back and read stuff about our, our, when the country was coming together, the quote unquote founders was very concerned about over concentration of power, even as powerful people. Well, we're there, power is extremely concentrated. And so I would say the whole economy has to work for people. John Rawls talked about this in the theory of justice. How do you organize a, an economy where the ultimate goal is not how much money you make, is how do you serve the people? And if you can serve the people and make money, go for it. But if it means you can't make money and serve the people, you don't get to make money. The, the, the penultimate value is service to people and I would even extend it to the planet. And, and things like inheritance tax and stuff like that. I mean. I start off from a position that all wealth is commonwealth. How we divide it up is up to us. It's not up to one person. You know, no one built wealth by themselves. So how do you make wealth in service of people? And then if you see some people persistently falling behind or persistently not being serviced, then you target that group. You don't blame that group for not being able to do what another group does. And one final question. Why do you do this work? What else is there to do? <laughs> I, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't been sleeping the last couple of nights worried about where our country is headed. I want to go sleep. I have kids. I have grandkids. I care about people. I love people. And, you know, when I talk about targeting universalism and how targeting universalism and belonging is clearly about everyone. It deals with our racial past. It deals with our gender past. But it's a future where everyone counts. And people are finding that when you stretch, when you can I mean, think about the election in Florida where they voted to change the constitution so returning citizens could vote. It got the largest single vote countage of any candidate, any issue in Florida because it was framed in terms of this is for all of us. This is for all of us. It's not just for blacks. Yes, blacks would be dis disproportionately benefited. It's not just for Latinos, it's for all of us. And now people are saying as a strategy that works, and I said, great, but it's not just a strategy. I really believe everybody counts. And so 
belonging is about saying every human being matters. And we need to organize a society that reflects that. That's awesome. Well, John, we could talk to you for hours, but we can't. <laughs> and you can't. But we thank you so much uh, for being on the show and for your work. And I hope you will join us again to explore so these well. matters in, in uh, further and deeper ways. If I may, before I, so I appreciate the work you're doing. And why do you do it? <laughs> I, I'm with you. What else would you do? Yeah. What else would you do? If you can, you should yeah. work on this stuff because nobody's, it, it's not going to take care of itself. And, and, you know, the forces of concentrated power are like, it's get, it's getting worse fast That's right. and um, all over the world. And, you know, anybody with a brain who's paying attention can see that top heavy structures topple over mm -hmm. always. They never don't. And we're in great danger of that happening really soon. I've got a lot to take away from that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was really struck by the distinction he drew between inclusion and belonging. I mean, how about the party example, right? Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic yeah. example of the difference between inclusion and, um, and uh, belonging. But I, I mean, you know, I'm super sympathetic with the distinction he's drawing. Yeah, there's... I mean, part of it is definitional in terms of yeah. uh, that particular example that that inclusion is is kind of something that happens to you. Like, okay, We're gonna, you can be included. Yeah. Whereas belonging is something that we that that we do together. It is more cooperative, and I think yeah. that's that's an important distinction to to keep in mind. It's like saying, you know, toleration. You know, like oh, religious toleration. I tolerate you having the wrong religion yeah. <laughs> um, but i don't welcome it yeah you know i tolerate people of different colors and races and ethnicities but you know i don't necessarily want to yeah. that is very different than belonging can i just say there's another yeah. distinction here and he brought up amartya sen yeah and amartya sen makes a very important distinction in in his capabilities approach between human capabilities and human capital that they're not the same thing and that we often look at like oh you give somebody an education that's human capital and that it gives you the capability to increase your productivity and your earnings and therefore to live a better life and what amartya sen points out is all that is true human capital is important but a capability is broader than that because an yeah. education also gives you uh, just a sense of a of accomplishing something. It gives yes. you the ability to participate in political debates, to be more engaged in your community in ways that are non-remunerative in an economic sense. And I right. think we talk about economic inclusion, and we do it in a very abstract, technical sense of how that drives economic prosperity and growth. And we believe that it's true. Yeah. It is it is a major driver of economic prosperity is to include more people in the economy from all different backgrounds, races, perspectives, etc. But I think what John is pointing out to when he makes this distinction with belonging is that belonging 
is something that is worthwhile, gratifying, important in and of itself, absent the economic outcomes. Yeah, no, it's, re it's really true. The evil of neoclassical economics, right? The, 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 the worst thing about it is it denies that inclusion even matters, right? right? This whole makers and takers thing, right? That there's this distinction between the good people who make things and everyone else who takes things rather than like this negative feedback loop or uh, decreasing return system between net makers and takers rather than an increasing return system between right. uh, buyers and sellers where, you know, the more of both we have and the more deliberate we are in creating more of both, the better it will be for everybody. We're all better off when we're all better off, right? I think of it a little differently in terms of the, the neoclassical, neoliberal approach. It's not that it, it doesn't say, it thinks that inclusion doesn't matter. It just thinks that the invisible hand will solve that. That's right. That I, I, you know, uh, uh, Hyatt, it'll either take care of itself or it'll be a thing we do after we have economic growth. Right. I mean, I mean, what they argue is that uh, well, racism is inefficient. Right. It's just it's inefficient, and so a racist company is going to be uh, less efficient than a non-racist company, and they'll be competed out of existence. You know, the invisible hand will solve this problem. And again, it gets to you know we talk about this a lot having cause and effect reversed yes. that that you know we say that you know uh, a thriving middle class is the primary cause and source of of growth not the consequence of it well there's a, a similar thing with inclusion the other side says that inclusion will be a consequence of growth that yeah. if we grow the economy more you know rising tide and all that more people will be included in it and our perspective is that inclusion is actually the primary cause of growth. Yeah. And and indeed, the economy has grown greatly over the last decades. Right. But in many ways, it has not become more inclusive. In fact, it's become more exclusive as wealth, power, and capabilities have concentrated into yeah. fewer and fewer hands. And this gets to an, another important point that, I, that, that John made uh, when we were talking about, you know, this racial resentment that Rand report from a couple of years ago highlights this, that it is absolutely true that no demographic group has seen their incomes grow more slowly over the past 40 years than white, non-college educated men. Correct. That is true. They still earn more than women and non-whites, but their incomes have grown slower. John pointed this out, and the RAND report points out the data. The fact that their incomes have stagnated or even shrunk is not because non-whites and women are doing better. It's because they have lost income to other white men yeah, like you, Nick. Top. Exactly. In, in the top 1%, right. in the top 0.1%. But, but it is just psychologically hard right. to mobilize people to confront uh, part of the in-group. It is hard to whip white, non-college educated men up into a frenzy against Elon Other Musk <laughs> and yes. Jeff Bezos, whom they worship, right? And this gets to the full name of, of John's Institute. It's not the Belonging Institute. It's the Othering 
and Belonging Institute. Yes. And what we have seen over the past few decades, and particularly in the era of Trump, is that emphasis on othering. Yeah. Well, it was a fantastic conversation, uh, and we were really uh, privileged to get to talk to John, and hopefully we'll get to talk to him and his team more in the future. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.